0: This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will be slightly different than previous topic review episodes in that we adapted an OrthoBullets Core webinar from the OrthoBullets Core curriculum for this podcast, and this one will cover TKA prosthesis design and TKA templating from the recon section. The topic will be reviewed by Dr. Michael Bolognese, who is a joint replacement orthopedic surgeon at Duke Orthopedics.
1: Thank you guys for letting me uh, serve as faculty we have some uh, interesting topics to go over. So I'll just jump right into it with a question. Uh, so you should be seeing here, there's 62 year old man is scheduled for total knee arthroplasty. In his preoperative office visit, he asked questions about different tibial components. Uh, and you tell him that compared uh, with the tibial component in figure A, and I'll show you these, uh, the tibial component shown in figure B, and there's our choices, less expensive, greater durability, greater interim stability. Uh, provides improved short-term functional status, but no long-term functional status, and associated with fewer adverse effects, uh, events, excuse me, because of easier implantation. So here are your, here are your pictures coming up. Of course, what you'll see is a modular, uh, cemented prosthesis there on the right, and, uh, what appears to be an all-polyethylene tibia, uh, with a, uh, CR-type femur, and that's the comparison. So as we move forward here, the answer, as you see here, is uh, less expensive. Uh, this is the answer looking at this uh, all polyethylene liner. As we talk about TK prosthesis design, uh, we'll talk about a lot of different sort of design issues, and I'll try to keep this simple, uh, but where there certainly are unconstrained uh, designs to consider, uh, posterior cruciate retaining or CR or posterior cruciate substituting, PS, and we'll even talk about some constrained options because they come up in a couple of the questions and certainly we're going to touch on fixed and mobile bearing. A little bit about history, you know the idea here of course was this was an effort to uh, at first was an interpositional type arthroplasty using soft tissue uh, to uh, reconstruct the articular surfaces. Uh, The actual first sort of metal prosthesis designed, uh, which was a hinge, was a Waldius in the 1950s. Things progressed from there in 58. McIntosh and McKeever introduced acrylic tibial plateau prosthesis to correct deformity and the uh first introduced sort of a bicondylar surface cemented arthroplasty of the knee joint in the 60s. Quepar, uh, there was a new, newer hinged uh, design developed in 1970 uh, based earlier on the earlier Waldius design that allowed for increased motion and took less bone. And certainly things jumped forward significantly in 73 uh, with the development of the total condylar prosthesis, which again was the first one to resurface all three compartments. This is a PCL-sacrificing implant. Important to point out what this prosthesis started to allow us to achieve is femoral rollback. We've highlighted femoral rollback there as a sort of a light blue, so we think that that's important. And uh, the definition of that, of course, as most of you know, is posterior translation of the femur as you go into higher flexion. We've got this located here as green. We think the importance that it improves uh, quadricep function and range of knee flexion uh, by preventing posterior impingement during deep flexion as the femur rolls back over. And we all know that certainly this is allowed in native knee by the way the PCL and the ACL work together. So I think, again, we've got that highlighted. This is our first green highlight where we're identifying this is something you might want to keep your eyes open for. The design implications uh, with both the PCL retaining and PCL substituting designs allowing for uh, femoral rollbackers such as this. If you think about it in the PCL retaining, the native PCL, is going to be what sort of helps promote posterior displacement of the femoral condyles, much like you get in a native knee. The PCL is substituting. It's a little bit different. It's going to use the post, right? The tibial post contacts the cam, the femoral cam, and that's what gives you your posterior displacement of the femur. So if we talk about constraints, uh, the definition would be the ability of a prosthesis to give you varus valgus and also flexion, extension, instability stability in the face of ligament, ligamentous laxia, or bone loss. That's what's going to sort of increase the challenge for constraint. Uh, the importance uh, in the setting of ligamentous laxity or severe bone loss, a standard cruciate retaining or posterior uh, stabilized implants may not be enough. And there's some questions that come up here uh, shortly where it sort of asks you about implant design, and we'll get to those because it's important to consider what you need for constraint. And, and we're going to touch on some of those things that direct you in moving up the constraint ladder, if you will. So here is that order, you know, the least constrained going to most constrained is going to be cruciate retaining to a PS with cruciate substitution. A various valgus constraint. There's a lot of different terminologies for that, but again this is various valgus constraint that's non-hinged. That's uh, sort of one, one rung below a true hinged knee implant or rotating hinge type device. So it's probably worthwhile understanding that sort of uh, ladder, if you will, of increased constraint. Modularity, uh, important. I think a couple concepts that come up here, but it's the ability to augment a standard prosthesis, usually for soft tissue issues or bone loss. And really where it comes up to first sort of start thinking about it is, Using a modular tibial base plate with a polyethylene insert as opposed to an all poly type insert like you saw in that first question. There is certainly an increased cost with this as we've seen over the years and probably has an equivalent rate of aseptic loosening depending on what references you look at compared with all polyethylene tibia. I think you need to understand uh, metal augmentation for bone loss and certainly the ability to use modular thermal tibial stems. Again, touching back on this issue about modularity, uh, particularly pertains to the polyethylene liner and the tibial base plate and the modularity provided there. The abilities is you can make, uh, as we all know, sort of an adjustment intraoperatively and uh, pick the polyethylene thickness that's most idealized after you've implanted the rest of the device or the actual metal implants. The disadvantages is the concern over increased rates of osteolysis. And the, obviously we're concerned about that coming from backside polyethylene wear, perhaps for, because of micromotion between the tibial base plate. Again, that's obviously not present, in an all polyethylene uh, tibial component or non-modular tibial component. So here's the next question, sort of moving on here. We got this uh, question about a posterior cruciate retaining total knee arthroplasty is contraindicated in all of the following patients except. And so what you're supposed to be able to pick out here is which of the folks is this going to be okay for? The, the options here severe rheumatoid arthritis, 52-year-old patient, 73-year-old with post-traumatic arthritis of knee and prior patelectomy, that's an important one to remember about patelectomy. 67-year-old with degenerative arthritis, 10-degree valgus deformity. 55-year-old male, post-traumatic arthritis, 20 years after a bicruciate ligament uh, rupture, so the ACL and PCL are out. And then you've got the chronic history of steroid treatment uh, in a patient with lupus and an arthritic knee. And basically, this is, this is sort of the clue that probably the only case you're gonna wanna consider uh, taking this uh, on, meaning, trying to uh, spare the cruciate uh would be the male patient degenerative arthritis or so non-inflammatory arthritis and it's really just got a fairly reasonable frontal plane deformity uh and that's the patient you can go after you don't you got to stay away from that patelectomy patient that's going to be PS design and certainly if both ligaments are out you can't go with the we should approach all right cr design uh minimally constrained prosthesis, obviously got to have the PCL in place uh there are some suggestions about indications as you see just from the question we did it says insane in a valgus deformity less than 15 degrees is okay there's less than 10. Uh, there may be some folks that would stretch this, but keep in mind, got to have the ACL intact. Probably your lesser deformities uh, depending on your comfort with that approach. The CR design is not going to show a box in the central portion of the thermal component as the PSNE has. It's sort of some straightforward stuff about radiographic identification. I would point out that obviously you could use a, uh, a ultra-congruent or sort of an anterior stabilized type polyethylene liner. We don't have anything on the slides in that, but certainly you might want to be able to understand that a CR femur could mate with that type of liner with the uh, cruciate being out. The advantages of a CR design, you, you're not gonna have uh, cam post impingement and that risk of dislocation or just impingement and poly wear that can occur with that with that design. Whether or not you get more uh, sort of normal kinematics is I think debated, but uh, with the PCL intact, it certainly has been purported that there's improved proprioception. Disadvantages if it's too tight, uh, that can cause issues with polyethylene wear and if it, if it ruptures late, that may set you up in a situation where the patient needs reoperation. Here's our next question. Range of knee mobility after total knee replacement is multifactorial and dependent upon implant design, surgeon implantation accuracy, and patient specific variables. What total knee implant design is associated with the most knee flexion after total knee replacement? You have here going, we have a high conforming articular geometry, a high flexion thermal component design manufactured to allow the most knee flexion, posterior cruciate stabilized implant with or without higher flexion manufacturing modification, and a posterior cruciate retainer design with a mobile bearing custom implanted based on CT scan data. Probably some, some sort of uh, a couple options in there to throw you off. Really, if you think about this, what the data would show is that it's going to be a posterior cruciate stabilized implant with or without any special modification from the standpoint of the, ma- the manufacturing uh, as it pertains to higher flexion. So that's just remembering where you're going to get a higher, better range of motion uh, without sort of any of these changes from the standpoint of actual design of the implant. Okay, PS design. Uh, slightly more constrained prosthesis. you got to get rid of the PCL. And the femoral component, as we touched on already, is going to have a CAM that engages with the post. And you have a little bit more higher congruency sort of A to P. And that's why you refer to these as more highly dished. Indications. We talked about previous patellectomy in that previous question. And we want to point out um, that it reduces risk of potential anterior posterior instability if the extension mechanism is weak. So that's one of these ones we've identified as potential target for the MOC exam. Uh, it's a great option, certainly in the uh, inflammatory arthritis population because of concerns of loss of the PCL late, uh, and certainly if the PCL is not there. Radiographs, we touched on this when I showed you the CR design type theme. Remember, there's going to be a box. There's different variability in how sort of high or deep these boxes are, but that's going to give you a clue on a radiograph if that's where they're trying to take you with a question. Advantages, easier to balance uh, with an absent PCL because you don't have to worry about balancing the PCL itself or recessing the PCL. There's this arguable point about more range of motion, as we touched on already, and potentially easier surgical exposure, particularly for tibial work, because you uh, don't have to sacrifice the uh, PCL, or you do get to sacrifice the PCL. Here's the disadvantages. Got to remember about cam jump, risk of that femur coming over the post, and if the flexion gap is uh, too loose, or certainly in hyperextension, uh, that can occur as well, depending on what's going on with the extension gap. Uh, Closed reduction is going to be your first realm of treatment, a round of treatment. Uh, certainly, if um, you have to do something uh, because you have recurrence or there's an issue with still sort of perceived instability, that's going to potentially lead to a revision. So it has to be considered with these processes. Don't forget um, that you can get polyethylene wear related to impingement. Uh, if you get hyperextension and post impingement, the box, the top of the box is hitting against the post. Uh, that's an issue potentially with some knee designs and certainly patellar clunk. Particularly, uh, there's some concern about basically basically the size of the box, or the fact there's a box there at all where you get that scar nodule above the uh, patella itself, which can cause mechanical uh, symptoms, and uh, this can often be addressed arthroscopically. Certainly want to be aware of that as sort of downside risk. Additional bone is often cut from the distal femur to balance the extension gap because your flexion gap gets larger when you take the PCL. So that's something you may have to do to keep up. Here's the next question, an obese patient underwent a, a posterior cruciate ligament retaining knee arthroplasty, failed. Patient's being considered for revision. Patient also has MCL out. So the medial collateral ligament is deficient. And if you're thinking about knee prosthesis, what features are considered to be essential? So we're saying no MCL here. You gotta have their opposing ability to remain, uh, retain PCL. Uh, the next sort of one constraint mechanism resists varus valgus loads want something that resists rotational load, something that allows femoral rollback, and then high conformity is discussed. What you really want to be concerned about with the MCL out is a constraint mechanism that would uh, resist various valgus loads. You've got to have something that's going to replace the deficient MCL, uh, and that's critical in that type of case. And so a constrained non hinge design would be one that is not a true hinge with that, so there's no axle uh, that links, if you will, or makes the femoral and tibial components relate together like a door hinge. It has a larger tibial post with a deeper femoral box and usually less space available for the post within the box. And its its idea is to allow varus valgus and rotational stability. Constrained non hinge design indications, LCL attenuation or MCL attenuation or deficiency, flexion gap laxity because the post in, is higher and the box is deeper, and certainly considerations in neuropathic arthropathy uh, with moderate bone loss. We'll see some questions come up here, some ratings, just remember, That non-hinge design is not going to show a true hinge or bolt across the femur. It may show metal reinforcement within the post, and that's a tip-off. That's what you're dealing with. Um, The advantage is more stability. If there's soft tissue issues, obviously the disadvantage requires more bone resection for this larger box. And there's concern as you increase constraint, that's going to transfer more stress to the implants, and that can be an issue with regard to loosening of implants. Our next question, 50-year-old man, he's a patient with uh, diabetes, in stage renal disease. He's got instability after a total knee. We've got some radiographs we're gonna look at. He's got a large effusion, maltracking patella, extensor lag, medial instability, gross laxity. Uh, it was an uncomplicated procedure using a posterior stabilized prosthesis with tibial augments, and uncemented intramedullary rods, both the femur and the tibia. And what they're proposing is, how could you have avoided this? We're gonna look at these uh, images here was sort of this challenging knee here that, uh, where this was taken on. So uh, where they're saying you could have, this thing obviously had a sort of a per, fairly catastrophic failure. And what you're what you're dealing with here in this diabetic patients where you probably have some Charcot type issues. This is one where even though this was sort of a primary knee issue, you probably, or at least start off as a primary knee case, this is one where you probably should have jumped right to a hinge. I think it's an important thing to consider in some of these cases they're showing you. Constrained hinge design. So here we are at the top of the ladder for constraint. Uh, it's our most constrained prosthesis. It's linked again, member femur linked to tibia. There's a rotation around a yoke in the tibial platform and it uh, decreases the overall level constraint if it's a rotating platform type uh, hinge. And this is the one you're going to use where there's this globus, globus uh, global ligamentous deficiency, hyperextension instability and in some of these uh, severe cases as they're indicated here. Tumor cases for sure, distal femoral replacement, proximal tibial replacement. And massive bone loss again in that neuropathic type joint. I think we have got another question coming up that t- highlights that. The advantages is it can involve, uh, you know, the highest level of stability in the face of bony, uh, and soft tissue loss, particularly ligamentous loss, medial collateral ligaments. Disadvantages again comes up this aseptic loosening. Again, increased constraint, increased stress to the cement, uh, implant bone interface. And you got to take out a lot of bone to get these implants into position. So here's another question. And we're talking about um, rates of loosening secondary to over-constraint. And they're asking which design here. So we've got some pictures coming up. And as you can see, we've got uh, what looks to be just a PS-type knee cemented. Uh, we've got a patella femoral We've got what looks to be a hinged-type uh, prosthesis. So we've got a partial uh, medial unicompartmental arthroplasty, archoplasty and a cementless knee uh, that appears to be, can't, we can't tell what type of sort of uh, PCL uh, performance has been uh, done there, uh, but the obvious answer here is going to be C. Uh, it's a Waldius hinge total knee prosthesis design and uh, data showing an increased rates of aseptic loosening because of that increased constraint. So that's something probably highly testable. What about mobile bearing designs? As we move along here, polyethylene rotates within the tibial base plate without a locking mechanism. Uh, with most designs, PCLs removed at the time of surgery. The advantages is that it can uh, theoretically reduce polyethylene wear. And that has to do with what it does to um, contact area uh, stresses, uh, below the base plate, uh, certainly on the tibial side. And I think there's some literature out there to support this idea, uh, because you are sort of trying to take pressure off because the the poly bearing gets to turn. There are some disadvantages. Bearing spin out has been described primarily in older designs. And that's something you would expect if the flexion gap's been uh, treated in a way that you're too too loose. Uh, The tibial, tibial rotates behind the femur. You know, and that's the one we're going to attempt at close reduction at first, but may require revision to stabilize the uh, flexion-extension gaps. What about all polyethylene? I think this is something we want to be mindful of. We've got this reference here, certainly about comparison, and there's numerous studies that compare these uh, all polyethylene designs to um, modular. But we touched on some modular issues. You know, because of the modularity, there have been concerns about rates of osteolysis. So if it's non-modular and all polyethylene there may be that price advantage with decreased rates of osteolysis. You do, you lose that flexibility intraoperatively. So clearly you're not going to have that available if you go to that approach. So here's the 67 year obese diabetic woman, uh, after bone resections, the PCL retaining trial implants placed at full extension, 30 degrees of flexion, nine degrees of flexion. It's tight, laterally, loose medially. They do more releases. A larger polyethylene trial is placed. Still medial laxity. It's asking you, what are you going to do now? Uh, and I think uh, you've got options here about what you're going to do as you have sort of continued to fight uh, getting stability in this knee. And what's proposed in this answer, which was not a straightforward knee by any any point, it looks like we've got potentially another sort of Charcot uh, situation in this diabetic patient, bone loss. Uh, this is going to be a convert to increased constraint. This is a Charcot arthritic knee, dad valgus. This is one where most folks are going to have to ramp up to a constrained design to sort of make sure this is something that's going to last for this patient. All right we're getting to the end here and I'm going to be able to pass it along to my colleagues fairly soon, but there's just some some points on templating. This uh, point here it's a it's a, I'm going to show you these images. There's a prior femoral fracture with retained hardware uh, and the point is, is about what what type of prosthesis is needed. The importance of this question is you if you look at this what's drawn for you where they show to show you this uh, weight-bearing line which looks like it goes through the middle of the femoral head, the middle of the joint. And on the lateral view, it doesn't look like there's a whole lot of deformity that's uh, large enough that you have to do anything heroic. This is one where they're proposing you could use a pretty straightforward knee design because the frontal and lateral plane sort of uh, abnormality is not so much that you need to do something like customized implu- I- implants or an extraarticular osteotomy or even a hinge because what's going on at the knee is manageable with a straightforward prosthesis. Well, why do you template? You want to anticipate the size and position of knee and implants prior to surgery. Uh, I think it's important, uh, certainly more and more important potentially as we consider trying to sort of smart template for cases, but it does let you sort of have a reliable start point. The accuracy depends on sort of how much effort you put into it, uh, but certainly you should be able to get within one size up or down. And how you do this can vary, but certainly you want to have good, appropriate uh, AP and lateral views uh, and the ability to template both the femoral and tibial component And understand the scale you might be dealing with. Uh, Weight-bearing films are critical. The lateral view is very helpful for templating. I don't think the patellofemoral joint uh, view is that critical. I like to use a long-standing film as well. That's pointed out here. That can be used for templating. That can help you avoid uh, those cases where you might need to do something about an extra-articular deformity, but it helps allow for planning of bone cuts. Think about most magnification through most systems. 20% is standard. I think if you use a digital templating system and a reference sphere or something like that, you're going to be more accurate than that. I do like to draw a line also middle of the femoral head to the center of the ankle, get an idea for what your mechanical uh, axis is. I also like to break these things out and draw not only what's shown here as the uh, anatomic axis for the femur and the uh, anatomic axis for the tibia, but also then sort of determine the difference between the femoral axis be it the anatomic and mechanical, and that gives you an idea of what that number is. We often just use a five degree jig. Uh, but the point here is that you can actually measure this and understand there's variability that five degrees may not be the ideal for each patient. The tibial cut, it's nice to draw a line center of the ankle, center of the tibia. Perpendicular to that, make plan your tibial cut. And then assessing bony defects and osteophytes, I think that's easiest on the AP view for sure. I use an implant design that allows me to match or tells me to match the native slope. So this is a nice thing to do and measure on the lateral radiograph. We think that's an important point to point out. It's important to think about patellar height. You think about things like range of motion and concern about patella baja and what that might mean for exposure. I think this is very helpful. You want to make sure you know what the patella looks like so you can plan the appropriate resection. What you take off should look like the appropriate resection and certainly helps you with tracking issues making sure you know how much lateral release is done. So you template the femur on the lateral x-ray. You want to restore posterior condylar offset and avoid notching, and then assess that size on the AP view trying to make sure you minimize overhang. On the tibial side, again, a template to whatever slope you want. On the AP radiograph and the lateral radiograph, you want to make sure you avoid oversizing, consider downsizing if that's present. I know that was sort of a quick uh, run through there, uh, but I do want to sort of respect everyone's time. I think some of those key issues, uh, that was some of the more straightforward stuff for sure. But again, understanding a level of uh, sort of increasing constraint for the patients is critical. Understanding that, sort of the indications for some of the uh, increasing constraint, and understanding some of the differences between the different prostheses, uh, some of these simple basic ideas I think are important. And again, we've tried to highlight those things specifically. Thanks again uh, to uh, the folks at OrthoBullets.
0: That's all for this review on TKA prosthesis design and TKA templating. Let us know if you found this format helpful by engaging with us on Facebook and Twitter, or send us an email to info at orthobullets.com. If you like these types of episodes, we will incorporate more of them into future episodes, especially for larger, more high-yield topics like today's. If you would like access to the full video version of these core webinars, sign up for the OrthoBullets core curriculum today. There will be a link in the show notes for anyone who is interested. Thanks so much for listening. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. See you all tomorrow.